Hi, this is Gamer UK, and you're listening to Mazacast with Unspeakable Acts and Friends. Please remember, this is for adults only, so if you're not 18, then please find something that won't get you into trouble to do instead. Have a nice, kinky day. Hi, and thanks for downloading another episode. Uh, and thanks to everyone who's uh, been uh, emailing and... Uh, well, emailing uh, about uh, uh, the 100th episode and giving giving ideas and who to interview, what to talk about, what to do for the 100th episode, and it's uh, and it's really very appreciative. Also, a, a number of people have uh, what's the word? They've expressed um, panic isn't the word, disbelief, chagrin. I don't know uh, about the fact that uh, I'm planning on taking uh, a bit of a break from the podcast after the 100th episode. Um, I was going to read some emails, and I, uh, I don't have enough time to do that right now, but I will next episode. Um, some people have ideas on how to, quote-unquote, save the podcast. We'll, we'll talk about all that stuff uh, in the next episode. This episode, a conversation with uh, Peter Tupper, who's got a, a great blog called The History of BDSM. It's really an, a very in-depth uh, and amazing blog. Uh, the website you can find on the podcast website massacast.com just click on this episode and you'll be able to see the link to it or you can just go to historyofbdsm.com so here's a conversation with peter tupper uh the first thing when i was reading your, your website is what what made you decide to put this together in the first place well way 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 back in uh, the early 90s i was going to university and then studying uh victorian history and that was roughly about the same time I was also getting involved in the scene uh, in Vancouver. And um, there was a, it was a, this was like way, way, way before the World Wide Web. This is when Usenet was sort of the cutting edge of the counterculture. But uh, so I was just sort of very basically learning about kink and through alt.sex.bondage and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, alt.sex.stories back then. And um, at the, around the same time, also from what the book, few books there were in the library, uh, Gloria Brame's uh, Different Loving was a big influence. Uh, around the same time, um, in the Victorian history chat, my Victorian history class, we mentioned uh, an interesting case of uh, Hannah Colwick and Arthur Munby. And uh, they were a Victorian couple. Uh, she was a maid of all work, and he was a uh, gentleman, a uh, barrister and a minor poet. And... Uh, one of the things they just offhandedly mentioned in my textbook that they had a consensual master-slave relationship. And this is around just when I was sort of learning about all this. And I thought this was really fascinating that this was, was um, that this was, you know, part of uh, this goes back this far. And there are people we know about in the, you know, centuries ago who were doing this kind of thing. Uh, the only reason we know about them is because they both kept diaries and these were kept in an archive until the, I believe, the 1950s. Wow. Um, and I'll, I'll get back to them later, but I'll, I'll pick up on this. So, um, anyway, so I sort of filed that away in my head and I just sort of remembered a few other things like that. Um, now that, that was in the early nineties. Now around 2004, 2005, I was sort of starting to think about this and, and, uh, this was after I'd been in the scene for a good 15 years or so. And I started to think about, um, I don't know if this was consciously in my mind, but I, th- I think it was Toni Morrison who said, you should write the book you would want to read. Right. And, um, and it just occurred to me that, you know, I've been reading lots of academia and lots of popular works about SM, and there'd never been a really comprehensive history of it. And, you know, even though, and, and I, when people did address the history, they would do sort of things like they'd sort of name check the Marquis de Sade mm-hmm. and... Um, Leopold von Sacramento and the Christian flagellants, and that would sort of be it. 
they would sort of there were these sort of three data points, these three cases, and that was it. No discussion, no sense of overall sense of it, and nobody I and it's, I'm surprised that nobody I've ever met in the scene has ever heard of Hannah Kolek or Arthur Munby, even though that they've they've uh, they were you know having what is undeniably a consensual master slave relationship. So. This went into uh, the book I was planning out, a nonfiction book. I also work as a journalist, and um, I figured that this would be an important piece of scholarship. It would be something I was really interested in, hopefully something I could uh, sell for a bit of money. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is what – and I figured that uh, I could blog about this, sort of document my history, my my research as I went. Then this started in about 2005 uh, with beautyanddarkness.blog.ca. And uh, so I've been researching and writing about that ever since. And uh, this is the year I hope to actually complete a draft. Because <laughs> when most people, I mean, I, I haven't even considered looking into the history of it until I saw your your blog. I don't know why it never really crossed my mind. Maybe it's because, um, you know, in my own personal experiences, it was always very isolated and very quiet. So I assumed that was sort of always the case. You know, we obviously everyone knows uh, the name Mar- Marquis de Sade, but in my mind, that's about you know, as far back as it goes, but your, your website shows, it's, uh, you know, there are plenty of cases from, from the time. Do you, do we know when it first, like our, the first, uh, uh, evidence of it being eroticized? Well, that's a really tricky question. If, and if I've learned anything in doing this, there is that there are no, there are no straight lines in the history of BDSM. Mm. It's all about sort of reflections and misunderstandings. It's, it's more like a funhouse mirror than a church. <laughs> um, what what you have is sort of um, shifts in understanding. Like um, the, the starting point that I go for is uh, actually in the, the Roman city of Pompeii, which was buried in a volcanic eruption. Yeah. And there's a, a strange house called the Villa of the Mysteries. Now, I should preface this by saying that the Romans had a very, very different idea of sexuality than we do. And, you know, when they were digging up Pompeii in the, the 19th century, they were finding all of this sexual art, all of these sort of little penis sculptures and vagina sculptures just all over the place. And people, they just didn't know what to make of this. And, they, and people were, like, assuming that something like a third of all houses in Pompeii were brothels. Um, but what it turns out is more like is that the Romans just like ha- liked having that kind of imagery around them. To them, it was representative of health and vitality and fertility sure. and things like that. And that we just don't think of it that way. We can't we can't see it that way. We can't uh, you know, it's like the old um, you know, the old story about, you know, it's like, a, is it a rabbit or a, or a duck? And we look at this, we can only see the rabbit. The Romans saw a duck. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, in the Ville of the Mysteries, uh, there is a a wall mural that goes around the wall. And it's almost a sort of, it's a sort of a narrative. It's a sort of, shows this woman going through uh, uh, some kind of ritual involving, which it's generally believed to be a sort of a a marriage ritual of of the cult of Dionysus. And each sort of representation around the room is of these sort of life-size figures is a step in this marriage ritual. And one of them involves um, a woman uh, wearing a pair of black wings and wearing boots uh, using a cane or switch to beat the woman who is being married. And she's the, the woman to be the bride is depicted sort of kneeling over another woman's 
uh, legs. And then in the next um, phase of the ritual, she is seen sort of dancing with finger symbols. And that to me is flagellation, voluntary flagellation, not necessarily in a sexual way, but as a part of a marriage ritual. Mm. Um, now that's sort of my starting point. And, and then a lot of the, my sort of theory of, of BDSM revolves around ritual, revolves around um, the use of voluntary pain within a ritual context. And that sort of is something that turns up in a lot of different religions all around the world. Uh, in the Native American First Nations people, you've got the uh, sun dance, which involves, which some of, which sometimes involves uh, hanging suspended by hooks or uh, stake, sticks embedded in the chest. Uh, in parts of India, there's what's called thaipusam, which involves people carrying uh, heavy weights embedded into their flesh over, you know, on, on ritual journeys. Um, in uh, Muslims, practice what's called tatbir, which is self-flagellation in honor of the, on, on honor of the uh, death of the uh, Muhammad's grandson. Uh, so all of these things happen, and they're all part of various forms of, of ritual. They're, uh, you know, what they're done for spiritual regeneration. Um, now they're not considered something sexual, and that's an important distinction to make because I think a lot of people sort of make this sort of muddled. They don't parse out the difference between the two. Well, I, I remember it, seeing something recently, and, and keep in mind, uh, I think I saw it on the History Channel, so consider the source, because the History Channel now is more about, uh, seems to be more about non-history than history, but uh, I, I saw something recently about uh, during the plague in, mm -hmm. in Europe that uh, there was a sect of Christianity that sprung up where uh, the people of this offset of Christian of you know Catholicism or whatever would uh, would run through the streets of different towns uh, flogging themselves you know uh, not flogging each other but flogging themselves and um, as a way to sort of repent that you know we have to repent and God is punishing us for the plague you know the plague is and if we do this it'll it'll protect us and uh, as the story goes now keep in mind consider the source but the story goes that um, women, because it was mostly guys who were who were doing this. Women would get really turned on watching these guys do this, and they'd have orgies afterwards. Um, again, I, I consider the source, but um, I was like, wow, okay, maybe maybe that, there's something there. Maybe you know, it could be just the, the fact that it's just an erotically charged atmosphere, or the fact that uh, you know so, something interesting is happening, and, and there's you know partially clothed people flogging themselves, and so you know might turn someone on, but. Um, apparently, it was fairly commonplace that after after they'd run through the town, f you know, flogging themselves, it'd be a, a little orgy afterwards. Okay, now that's you see that's the the Christian flagellants that so often come up in these conversations. Right. Now it's an important to understand that what what you what you mentioned. Um, I'm going to skip over the whole question of the post-flagellation orgy. That's a whole different thing. Sure. Um, is that now that was a lay movement that grew up in response to and all kinds of. Uh, you know, the Black Plague and, and various wars. and I mean, it was a very apocalyptic atmosphere mm. at the time. Um, now, this these were sort of mass uh, demonstrations by lay worshippers, and they they were, uh, a, you know, a very strong force. And, and, you know, imagine being a rich man back then, and you wake up in the, in the morning, and there's like a 20 men stripped bare to the waist, beating themselves bloody, surrounding you and saying you're going to go to hell, uh, surrounding your house and saying you're going to go to hell. Mm. In fact, it, it re that really got uh, to the to a head in, in the uh, 14th century when uh, the Pope um, Clement VI, I believe, 
actually invited them, the uh, lay worshippers, the lay flagellants, to uh, Avignon, and you know had them do their thing and gave them permission to do it in their in his city. Uh, the problem was is that a few months later, the uh, civil authority, the nobility, you know, you know, pressured the pope into banning it again. Right. So there was a full papal bull banning lay. Uh, lay worship, lay uh, flagellation. Just when the fun and, starts, the Pope has to step in. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, now it's 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 easy to sort of squeeze that into a, into a, a repressive narrative, but you got to understand is that for cent- you know for several centuries before that, and so and many centuries after that, there was a lot of flagellation and other forms of physical ordeals practiced within uh, monastic life. Mm-hmm. There were you know monks were famous for. Um, you know, many there were several monks that were quite famous for undergoing um, horrific um, self-flagellations. You know, wearing hair shirts and sillices, um, You know, starving themselves. You know, as a means of uh, Im- what they called imitatio Christi, in the imitation of Christ. And this coincided with um, a lot of um, relatively, of, you know, Christian art depictions of the passion and of, and, uh, in which, uh, Christ's, uh, physical suffering was emphasized. Like some physical, some Christian art emphasized that Christ was just impossible to hurt. He was like Superman. He mm-hmm. could not be hurt other. And, but another strain of Christian art emphasized that Christ suffered as a human being and that they would, he would be depicted, you know, beaten and bloody and dying or dead. And, uh, emaciated, and it was a very different method of, di- very different form of of telling the story. Now, where this gets sexual is that you have to understand is that the church was never completely comfortable with flagellation and other, other physical ordeals. There was always concerns it was going too far. There was all concerns that lay people would start doing it and sort of derive physical derive their sort of sanctity from outside the established channels of the church. And there were criticisms that of, and there were all debates that lasted for centuries within the church about should this be allowed? You know, should it be allowed only in certain ways by certain people, or is it just too physical, too and too likely to incite lust? Um, and so that was there was an ongoing debate. Um, like, for example, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila. Uh, she was a nun who was famous for having uh, received a transverberation. And what this is, is that exactly? A, a transverberation is um, what she claimed is that an angel visited her, and uh, according to her, pierced her abdomen with a spear repeatedly. Uh, and this was like her visitation of from you know, her divine presence. Yeah. Now, we, you know, her description of this sounds almost erotic. Sure. Uh, and now that's because we sort of we you know here we are early 21st century we have a hard time thinking about this in any other way um but what people there it, that was not universal people there were people who you would describe the sort of experience to and they would think okay this means something this means this person is special that this person received a visitation from a divine being and uh, we would stabbed. not yes <laughs> that and that that was the idea is that that you know that communication with the divine is beyond language. It's, yeah. It has to be experienced physically. Um, so, but things were changing. And so uh, when Bernini, a famous sculptor, uh, put up a, made a life-size statue of um, this event, depicting both the angel and St. Ter- Teresa in uh, Venice, um, not he, there was one critic who spoke up and said something like, 
you know, not only is our saint um, prostate, but she is prostituted. You know, this was too sexual, too erotic. Um, there, there were, and the, it, this wasn't, you know, an, an isolated thing. There were, there were, you know, discussions in Holy Council, the Council of Trent, and things like that, worried about, you know, people um, selling erotic imagery, lascivious imagery. Uh, at holy sites, there were people um, complaining that you know this one really bizarre. One priest, you know, complained that he'd caught somebody masturbating at the site of a crucifix. So this was becoming a this was becoming a a sort of a problem is that there was no ongoing uh, belief that you know we we couldn't make that separation anymore. There was no universal agreement that the image was a rabbit instead of a duck. Yeah. So the and more and more started people started seeing the duck, and this you know and Protestantism in particular accelerated this because Protestantism had a real problem with the whole Baroque excess of Catholic imagery and it was all about it was supposed to be all about, you know, simplicity, sober contemplation. Uh, Martin Luther himself uh, actually flagellated himself as a youth, but he decided it just it was not the route to God. Now, so sorry, I just I just reflected on the fact that I was raised Lutheran, and <laughs> just realized realized oh wow, man, I wonder wonder what my relatives would think of that. <laughs> um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, now around the same time is that we started having sort of secular ideas of of about human nature, about human experience, what people do, and um, it's around 1500 that I think we find the first uh, case of sort of what you might call a case study of a form of voluntary flagellation that is not uh, religious in nature. And that comes from an astrologer called Pico de la, de la Mirandola, who wrote a book on, I think he offhandedly mentioned this in one book. And uh, he talked about a man who needed to be flagellated to be aroused. And uh, he attributed, the the man in question attributed this to uh, being beaten as a child, which was actually an extremely common thing back then. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the the beginning of the secular sexual view of it. And there's also the problem that th- there's also an, another sort of pushing factor in this is that politi- is that whenever you want to discredit your 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 religious enemies, the most reliable method is to attribute them sexual excess. So this was like what Protestants, especially in uh, England years later, um, were trying to discredit and um, demonize Catholicism is by making it the, is by presenting it the, at this hotbed of of lasciviousness that, you know, uh, nuns were basically the sex slaves of priests that, um, you know, self-flagellation and other things were basically you know, just done solely for sexual arousal and so forth. It was an incredibly, um, it was, so there's all, there's all, there's this recurring habit of selecting your enemies and attributing them sexual excess, sexual deviance. And um, that is a recurring habit that turns up in so many times in the centuries to come. So uh, what are, what are some of the earliest, I mean, uh, I, I imagine, uh, there's got to be something as far as erotic literature that uh, includes BDSM before, um, you know, the stuff everyone knows, like the Marquis de Sade. Is, or is, is that really the biggest, you know, the most popular examples? Uh, well, um, let's see. Uh, there's a play called uh, The Virtuoso, which was by, I believe, Thomas, Thomas Shadwell, I believe, um, which uh, was 
around 1690, and it includes a man named uh, Snarl, who's an old lecher who entreats a brothel madam to beat him. And um, in another play called uh, Venice Preserved, by, and I believe that was by Thomas Otway around the same time, um, there's a, uh, it's set in, it's English, but set in Venice and they have, a, a man, um, a Senator, uh, coming to a courtesan named Aquilona, Aquilina, Aquilina, and asking her to humiliate him, treat him as an animal, kick him, beat him, so forth. Um, yeah, that's as porn as we would understand it today as we would, it didn't really turn up until sort of the early 1700s. Um, Fanny Hill, for example, uh, which is probably the best-known erotic novel of the period and one that is probably the world's most pirated book, I bet, um, actually included a flagellation scene, which was different, which was actually a bit unusual is that it went against the grain by showing the man who wanted to be beaten was uh, a young man instead of an old man because the common belief was back then it was old men who needed uh, the extra stimulus to uh, literally heat them up right. and make them capable of erection and arousal. So I, I got to ask, is it, when, when you see uh, early examples like in the plays, uh, is it fairly commonplace uh, or is it kind of put in there because it's so out there? Um, I think it's attributed as a form of that these people are decadent and damaged and, uh, it's not exactly what you call sex positive. Right. Mm, there's a certain maybe, or maybe in, in I mean, in um, in Fanny Hill, it's sort of a value neutral. It's merely sort of there for, you know, almost sexual curiosity rather than passing any particular judgment on it. Um, in some cases, uh, there was another book published around the same time called uh, Therese Philosophe, which was in France. And uh, that included uh, was sort of a, an anti-clerical uh, satire, um, which used uh, flagellation and as part of uh, as part of sort of the general sexual menu, if you will. And um, so that was sort of taking the idea that that you know it was very it, uh, exponent of materialist philosophy. So you had you had a porn novel that also would go into long lectures about materialism <laughs> and and atheism. So hey, you know, sign there, me up. <laughs> there, there was, you know, it's like there's no, like I said, porn wasn't even like a defined genre yet. Yeah. You know, um, people would, you know, write, you know, do one erotic novel and then they'd, you know, stick in some uh, satire on their political enemies or a lecture on on uh, Molinism or whatever. Um, and, you know, or some obscure, obscure point of, of theology. And uh, there wasn't any sort of hard and fast genre of this kind of thing. Um, so there was, um, I don't know if there was like what you might call a, a flagellant culture. I mean, it, there's lots of evidence that there were that brothels in England and probably in France and other countries, uh, offered this as one of the sexual services. So um, it wasn't unheard of. It was definitely no, it was not unheard of. Part, part, part of something that people enjoyed. It was, it yeah. was right. It wasn't like, uh, some strange oddity that would pop up every now and again. Um, I think it was something, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't medicalized, which is important. This was like before sort of the, before psychology, before yeah. that was like a century later in the late 1800s mm -hmm. to sort of medicalizing it. It was just sort of there as a kind of a curiosity. And if you were a libertine or you knew about that sort of culture, you knew people did this and, um, you know, to each their own. Yeah. Uh, so 
When is the first uh, example that, that uh, you could find of something that's specifically geared towards people who are into this? Um, let's see. I don't think that's a good question. I don't think there was like sort of specifically flagellation erotica until that was focused purely on that until sometime later. Well, some aspect like, of BDSM, you know, or whether it's power exchange or something like that. Uh, is there, is well, there anything that really jumps out and says, okay, clearly this person is into it and is writing it for other people either to get them into it or because they're already into it? Well, that's a tricky thing. Okay, and remember when I said there are no straight lines in yeah, this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's why you have to sort of like see, you, you, it's hard to trace back to sort of the very first point. You have to sort of identify like the imperfect form and then the slightly more perfect form and the slightly more, you sort of, it's all about misreadings. Like when I was a kid, when I, when I was, my sexual education, I was slightly embarrassed to say was, um, sneaking into my parents' room at, and going through each and every book in their bookcase looking for the sex scenes. Yeah, right. And these might be like one, you know, a two-page sex scene in one, you know, in a full book, in a full novel that that wasn't, you know, by anybody's definition erotic. But right, right. Like, you know, I, I think if I'm judging your age right, you know, you and I both grew up, you know, before, you know, internet, before this kind of thing. Yeah. So. This was like, you know, you were desperate for any kind of sexual information and you had to sort of prowl through these books looking for, you know, anything, right? That's when the JCPenney's catalog was tiddly. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And so I think is that what people back then were doing is that they were people looking would prowl through uh, books looking for particular scenes and they would sort of absorb that into yeah. their consciousness and sort of replay it, re-embroider it, remix, resample, and sort of embellish this into a fantasy. Um, both Sigmund Freud and uh, Victor and Richard von Kraft Ebbing, uh, who was like the other, probably the other biggest name in, in, in sexual science, uh, they both talked about patients whose uh, sex, masochistic or sadistic fantasies were based on Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a uh, famous abolitionist book, anti-slavery book, which mm -hmm. was written in the, I believe, 1852. And it was an incredibly popular book. It was like, I think, like the world's best-selling book short of the Bible. Mm. And people all over the world, there were pirated copies, all editions all over the world. People were reading, people read no, who never read another book in their lives read that. And or had read them or or saw stage plays based on it or things like that. Yeah. Now, if you read the book, there's Harriet Beecher Stowe, the woman who read the wrote the book. She was actually a sort of a New England uh, Puritan, and she was actually very careful about not having any uh, sort of explicit sexuality or explicit flag beating or scenes. And it, it, like the most explicit beating scene actually occurs sort of off camera. Um. But lots of publishers actually, you know, would actually uh, sex up the story. They would add bits of, you know, their own illustrations, which had more sexual content to them. They'd have, you know, so um, women, the women being beaten as young, as younger and, and more shapely. And the people were reading these and sort of embroidering them into to their own ideas. Um, the same thing, like one patient of Kraft Ebbing's, uh, reported, you know, basing his sexual fantasies on uh, Robinson Crusoe, of all things, wow. and the scene in which Friday sort of submits to him, to Crusoe. And that was, you know, people were taking these little, 
you know, one little snippet of, of, of scenarios and basing their fantasies on this. Uh, that's Sigmund all it Freud, was, right. Yeah, Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna, uh, she wrote uh, an essay about uh, beating fantasies where she talked about how she sort of read, you know, uh, when she was a girl, she read this book of uh, about medieval knights and she glimpsed this one little scenario about it that she probably didn't even consciously remember it. But she embroidered this scenario and, and sort of rewrote it and readapted it and re-envisioned it over and over again in her mind until it became the sort of full-fledged uh, sadomasochistic fantasy. Um, so what you have is this whole – it's an evolutionary process. So um, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Before that, you had women like uh, Harriet Jacobs, who was an escaped slave wrote a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is her autobiography about her, her real-life experiences of sexual abuse. In fact, she was so frank about um, you know, her, her constant threat of abuse and rape that uh, she had a hard time getting a publisher in it, publisher for her work. Um, so that was actually published before Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm. Now, in England, about 20 years later, after the American Civil War, uh, a pornographer published, I believe it was Charles Carrington, he published a book called uh, something like The Secret Life of Linda Brent. Now, Linda Brent was Harriet Jacobs' uh, pseudonym, pe uh, pen name, and this was a purely pornographic thing. It was like, you know, it was taking a text, a sort of genre of, of media, which everybody was familiar, would have been familiar with from reading books like Uncle Tom's Cabin and... Um, incidents in the life of a slave girl and using it as a basis for us for an erotica story. And you can jump sort of another layer beyond that. And you had books, later books like, um, uh, let's see, I think it was like memoirs of Dolly Morton, uh, which was a woman, uh, which was, a about a Northern woman who traveled, which was published, I believe in the 1890s, well after the American civil war, who travels to the South to run the underground railroad and, and winds up being treated basically like a slave woman, even though she's white. Um, so you have this sort of, you can see this evolutionary process of this is how the slave girl became white. Yeah. This is, and it's, it's this misunderstood, parodied, reflected, distorted, garbled version that you can trace back to American slavery uh, Atlantic slavery, you know, sometimes in the South Pacific and so forth, in the South Atlantic and so forth. And it's this evolutionary process of, of, of cycling through this idea and sort of honing the, starting with something that exists in real life that is taboo, that is shocking, that is exciting, that presents this sort of, uh, alternate way of sexual life where, you know, um, where polygamy is possible, where, um, even, you know, homosexuality is possible. Uh, you know, one of Linda, you know, sorry, Harriet Jacobs' comp's most shocking elements is that she was, you know, hinting that male-male um, sexual encounters between male masters and male slaves occurred, which was really, you know, very shocking for her, for anybody to say at the time. Mm -hmm. And this sort of was cycled through and eroticized over a period of decades, and it's something we're sort of still processing today. And um, getting back to uh, Hannah Culwick and, and Arthur Munby, whom I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, they met in 1854. And their master-slave relationship, this was before the American Civil War, their master-slave relationship was based on um, Munby's, their idea, their sort of garbled idea 
of what American slavery was like. Uh, there's this interesting moment where Munby in one of his journals talks about uh, seeing the blackface minstrels who who worked in the street on the streets of London and do, did what you know some version of minstrel shows and Negro songs and things like that. And, you know, while he was watching this show, somebody came up to him and say, hello, sir, would you be interested in, in all the details of plantation life? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. And, you know, Munby, who was extremely uncomfortable with anything sort of explicitly sexual, you know, sort of shrank away from that. But in secret, he had this whole complex relationship with Hannah Colwick, um, whom he admired for her her size, her, her strength and her blackness in a way he sort of like saw her maybe not as literally black, but he sort of saw her on as on this chain of being, uh, closer to a Negro woman or even a Negro man than he himself was that she's, you know, uh, she would call him Massa. Uh, she would wear a locked chain collar. She would wear a, a leather, uh, leather uh, wrist strap on her right wrist, um, and it was all. And that was a, a very that was a whole sort of erotics of their life was based on sort of a, this garbled misunderstanding of eroticized, romanticized version of American slavery. So, what did their diaries reveal? Um, well, they um, did this in secret. Um, for they, um, they were such a huge gap between their social standings that there couldn't really be a legitimate relationship between the two. Um, Hannah was Hannah Colwick. She uh, was a maid of all work. So uh, she was a, a big, strong woman, um, totally the opposite of sort of the Victorian ideal woman. Uh, you know, she Munby loved her size and her dirtiness. He was, I guess today we would call him a misophile, a man attracted to dirty women. Mm. And uh, he would like, you know, uh, one of the, he would like literally cut the callus off of her hands, and you know that was you know something he enjoyed doing. Um, he would arrange it so that he could, would stand on the opposite side of the street while she was working, uh, scrubbing flagstones and things like that, and with like people literally walking over her uh, on the street. They couldn't be seen together in public, really, and they would meet in private. Um, actually that was the, the interesting element is that they would switch and, uh, Munby would talk about how he would sit on her lap and, uh, nurse on her. There was sort of an age play, uh, inf almost infantilist element going on. Um, you know, the precisely the fact that she was so big and, and strong was an appeal. It was appealing to him. Um, you know, she would, uh, you know, talk about her, he would, she would send her him notes detailing all the work she did. Um, you know, she worked like 16 hours a day, you know, making meals and scrubbing, cleaning out chimneys all by herself and, and things like this. Wow. And she was a very interesting woman. She really eroticized the, the, the brutality of the work she did. She didn't want to be like this, you know, this upper class maid. She actually liked being sort of down at the lower the, almost the lowest level of the domestic hierarchy and the work hierarchy. But on the other hand, she was also a very strong and independent woman and in some ways more self-reliant than Munby was. Uh, she made a point of always having enough money to live on. Uh, she was, you know, if she felt that the sort of the, the tacit relationship she had with him wasn't, wasn't being agreed, wasn't being upheld, she was capable of standing up to him. 
Um, you know, there was a couple of incidents where, uh, you know, men tried to force themselves on her and she basically kicked their asses. Right. <laughs> are, there, um, are there many, uh, other examples of people in, obviously not everyone would keep a diary of their sex lives, but, um, are there other examples of of people who you know later on it fi- turned out wow it turns out this person was kinky and was living a living a life of kink of some sort? Um, well, you see, it's it's only like kind of a fluke that we actually have these diaries at all. Like uh, Munby was known, you know, he actually destroyed some of his early diaries, and and um, he was it was only kind of a fluke that the diaries were were did survive recounting their relationship and they only turned up and I, mean, I think they were held at, uh, at Oxford's for something like 50 years after he died. Wow. Um, so he could have lost those very easily. I mean, we have no idea what went on behind closed doors in all this time. There could have been all kinds of strange things. Um, one example that does leap to mind, uh, although this was decades later than this was, uh, T.E. Lawrence. Um, and he was a very, uh, remarkably interesting guy, uh, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's this famous incident where he was, uh, captured and beaten and, um, during, uh, the first world war. And, uh, we're not really sure how much of this is sort of like really happened and how much of it is sort of filtered through his own masochistic fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, years after that, uh, he went on this very peculiar uh, turn of masochism where he sort of reenlisted in the army as an, under an alias. And uh, I think it was sort of like, it was sort of like implicitly known who he was, but everybody sort of said, okay, he's Mr. Smith. Don't bring up, don't bring up the past. He um, had this bizarre thing. Like he would enlist them and he would, these other men who knew, he knew in the service and he would tell them these, this bizarre story about how uh, uh, this fictitious uncle had uh he had stolen money from this fictitious uncle and that as punishment he had to re-enlist in the service he had to be beaten regularly uh and so he lawrence was right so lawrence was writing these letters in the persona of this fictitious uncle instructing his friends how to beat him in precise detail (laughs) like you know this many strokes he should be dressed this way and yet in the same letters, the Lawrence as the uncle was also saying, you know, if you have any influence over your friend whatsoever, please persuade him to stop this. <laughs> so, yeah, this was, I think, Lawrence, I think, was a very troubled man. Right. Uh, you know, we also, you know, turn up other odd things. Uh, William Gladstone, the prime minister of England, he was also uh, made a habit of um, seeing flagellant pro- seeing uh, prostitutes and making little uh, little coded notations in his diaries for when he was beaten um there was uh what's his name uh henry spencer ashby who uh collected uh, had amassed these gigantic collections of pornography there are all kinds of these victorian eccentrics um who uh you know had flagellant lives uh, there was it was fairly you know if you were sort of in the know you knew that there were specialized, even you know, brothels in the England that specialized in fra- uh, flagellant services. Um, uh, there was a famous madam uh, named Teresa Berkeley who uh, was fa- had uh, commissioned the Berkeley horse, which is an early form of a uh, spanking bench, mm-hmm. which is a sort of padded ladder ap- apparatus. And um, you know, so there's we there's. There was definitely a flagellant or masochistic, sadomasochistic subculture 
in the late 18th, sorry, late 19th century. There, there, uh, there were lots of brothels about it. There were people writing books about it, both sort of above ground and below ground in sort of the pornographic world. Um, in fact, there was a, a really bizarre incident where, um, now Mrs. Beaton was sort of the Martha Stewart of her day. And she was the columnist in a in a magazine called the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, which was kind of the Martha Stewart's living of her day. Right. I love uh, the name already. It's hilarious. Um, now, she died, uh, and her husband, Sam Beaton, who was um, the publisher of the magazine, he went on this rather bizarre kick for about a three-year period where the magazine was publishing these letters about um, spanking about, uh, extreme corset training about, um, amputee fetishism. Now it's no, it's anybody's guess whether these now either these letters are also just bizarre and so vague that they're almost probably not real. But the question is, were people actually writing them and sending them in or were they just generated in house? Right. And, I'm not, I, I don't know. I think that the, the print that I think people were dreaming up these kinds of things and writing them and sending them in and beaten for whatever bizarre reason, um, you know, whether he was trying to screw with his publishers or doing some kind of elaborate prank on the world, uh, was printing them in the magazine right next to, you know, the recipes and, and things. So, well, regardless of uh, if they were, if they were real or fake or not, they were printed. You know, yes. that, that's the that's the big thing. So regardless of intent, it was there. And I think it's it's a big deal either way for the time. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a it's one of the stranger things I've encountered in this. Believe me, I've, I've encountered some strange things in this research. I've been looking through through your blog and it um, in one of your more recent posts, you showed the penthouse's first BDSM pictorial in 1976. Yep. Now. Part of me is shocked that there wasn't something earlier, but part of, other part of me is is surprised there was something that early because uh, looking at the photos of it, it's it's not like oh you know uh, the pictorial which you know we can have the link on the on the episode of this podcast. Um, it's not light, you know. It's not like furry handcuff stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what kind of surprised me about it because I just imagined oh well this, if it's the first one it's going to be fairly. Uh, fairly tame, but it's not. It's not tame at all. Well, I mean, like, compared to what you'd see in your, in, you know, I, I think you'll notice there's like not visible bruising yeah. or welts or anything like that. So, you know, this is like at a period when Penthouse and Playboy and Hustler and so forth were doing this kind of one step forward, one step back mm-hmm. dance. And they were trying to see just how far they could go, you know, also trying to sort of define the genre because. You know, usually when you saw uh, pictorial in Penthouse, it was sort of this very soft core pastoral stuff. It was set in like a domestic, you know, somebody's home or out in the in the in the woods in a meadow or something like that. And it was like, uh, you know, in a very sort of soft focus kind of way. And, you know, this was like sort of very direct lighting, high gloss, high this. So it was a, it was an aesthetic departure and also it was like a, a departure from sort of this very this very soft you know, approach that had been dominated before. And like I said, now up until there were, you know, plenty of magazines like this being published, um, 
you know, going back a long time, you They're know, not at, mainstream at, probably though, right? Or yeah, the, you know, you know, you, you know, back in the forties, you had uh, John Willie selling Bizarre magazine practically out of the trunk of his car, yeah, um, and things like that. And there, I think at this point, there were already a certain number of, you know, semi-professional glossy magazines being produced. But you know, this was like the first sort of national newsstand magazine. Uh, you know, not something you'd buy, something you could buy just about anywhere yeah. rather than just in a, you know, at a, you know, some little shop on 40 on in Times Square in New York or another major city like that. So it was an important development. And this was like, you know, you know, the, the subculture sort of leaking into the mainstream a bit. It's a little like, you know, in England, almost like about 10 years before this, you had, you know, fashion designers mainstream fashion designers borrowing leather and, and latex and PVC and things like that. And, you know, this sort of subcultural thing associated with bikers and, you know, uh, fetishist magazines was sort of influencing mainstream fashion. So yeah, it was, that, that was like the first little step into the mainstream seeing this in sort of public, but yet at the same time, you also had, you know, I'm sure you remember the old Batman show with which was always full of these weird bondage situations yeah. and, and and you know Earth you know the various cat women and these you know wasp ways to cat suits and things like that. So it was always sort of there subliminally almost. It was like just the penthouse that particular you can measure that data point the penthouse pictorial is like you know making it just a little more explicit, just a little more you know, ready for the mainstream. And of course they, they, they took a sort of a step backwards from that and they were, you know, they wanted to find that sweet point of not going too far and not getting people on their case and not having the advertisers drop out. When I was preparing for this interview, I was looking through a lot of your, your po and there's tons on your website. I mean, you've been doing this for many years. Um, and it just, it, you know, when I, if I were to imagine how how much info there would be on this i wouldn't think there would be that much but there's just so much you, you are you finding that you should you stumble upon new sources all the time yeah i've, I've actually for, had to force myself to to not to stop the research and sort of just go with what i've got and and actually write a darn write the darned book um but it's like i, I think i've you know it's something i think i could do forever and i actually do need to sort of stop and and create a book but it's like i, I i've Part of the reason there's so much material is that I've I've been, I think I've been, you have to go a little further afield to understand it. Like you have to go beyond just what most people would consider porn to understand porn. So like you to to me, you know you you have to understand Uncle Tom's Cabin and where that fits into history and views of the body and views of sexuality and views of race and views of of uh, the Gothic and so forth. And I mean, most people would not consider that a porn book, but it's it was influential in the evolution of pornography and the influential of of sadomasochistic ideas and and fantasies. Is it because people will, if if they don't have a source for it, they're going to look for whatever gets them off wherever they can? I think so. I think um, there's kind of a chicken and egg here thing. Is that is that you know, were, were people kinky and this is all they could find or was, were people, you know, kinky and this is what, or were people made kinky by this or, um, it's more like, you know, I think people like maybe imprint on a sort of a certain 
trapping certain imagery, certain costumes and roles and things like that. And they base their fantasies on that. You know, I, I don't, but as it's, is there some predisposition? I honestly couldn't say, I don't, I'm trying to avoid sort of the psychological exploration of that and go more for the cultural. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, like I said, it's a chicken or egg thing. Are there any, are there any big things that we, we haven't talked about now that you, you were just surprised at or just completely blew you away? Well, what I think is, is th- there's this recurring cycle of the eroticization of taboo and of over and over again, what I find is that there's, there's sort of a, a traumatic historical event and a, at a certain point, at a certain remove, both geographically and chronologically, like in another country and say anywhere from, you know, decades to even centuries later, people start eroticizing it. People start making erotic fantasies about it. So in England, you, in, you know, in 18th century England, you had people writing, you know, anti-clerical porn with, you know, with fantasies about nuns and lecherous priests and, uh, and things and people being forced, women, young women being forced into convents and things like that. Um, the Greek war of independence in the, uh, early, uh, 19th century, you had a, a, a sculpture called by a, called uh, the Greek Slave, which is uh, this nude sculpture of a woman in chains holding a crucifix, and uh, it included this little uh, the, uh, the the sculpture included this little pamphlet of um, of women of you know explaining the scenario behind this image that she's been held prisoner by. She's a Greek Christian and she's been held prisoner by Turkish invaders and she's in danger of being, you know, raped and sold to a brothel or something. And uh, it's all and, um, you know, but she is her face, her faith will keep her innocent and things like that. And this was a sculpture exhibited, you know, in in mass exhibitions with, with you know, women, men, women and children coming to see it. Uh, American slavery uh, contributed to to sexual to uh, the stock of sexuality in England and elsewhere. Um in the World War One, there were people writing about uh, that the German invasion of Belgium was seen in terms of of rape, not only in the sense that because of this occupation, literal rapes would occur, but the political situation as a whole was seen as rape, not even as like as as a as a seductive turned brutal. Mm. Um, and you had, you know, um, pictures. You know, there's a famous picture of like this. Uh, I believe it was a French propaganda picture of this, you know, basically like a look, looked like a, a rabid gorilla with one of those uh, German Prussian helmets with, you know, the little spike on top, um, you know, carrying a club and, and a, you know, an a unconscious nude woman in a see-through uh, dress, you know, implying that this is that this political aggression, this political aggression is linked to sexual aggression, that this is, you know, we should view this as a rape of the innocent. Um, after the Holocaust, uh, you had all this, there was the, uh, what they called the Stalag books published in Israel in the sixties. And, uh, these were stories of, you know, uh, allied, uh, you know, written in Hebrew. And there were stories of, of allied pilots being dropped into, you know, um, 
POW camps and run by sadistic female guards yeah. and things like that. And the same, you know, the uh, those men's adventure magazines published in the 60s and 50s and 60s with like, you know, SS girls and hot pants and things like that. And, oh, yeah. And, I, mean, I mean, I remember I, it was on some femdom blog, I remember, or something like that, where they were showing uh, imagery. And there was some stuff from the late 40s. Uh, some you know some cartoons of you know the Helga from the SS, yeah, you know in, invading and just she's just she's not really there to take over your country she's just there to fuck your brains out type of thing. <laughs> it was and it was yeah. just like wow that, that didn't take them long at all you know. Nope. Well, it, it, you see, like the, the the Helga you're talking about, I think you might be thinking about like the Ilsa movies. Um, that that's interesting because there's there's a quartet of movies called uh, the Ilsa series which starred Diane Thorne. And um, now, and the first was uh, Ilsa Shewolf of the SS. Now, this was sort of very loosely based on a woman named Ilsa, uh, I believe it's called Koch or K-O-C-H, who really was a, a prison guard in uh, Ravensbrück during the war. Um, so this is sort of very, 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 very vaguely based on reality. Right. Very. I, 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 can I add in a few more varies? Um, <laughs> Um, and, uh, this was, you know, a movie, an exploitation movie called Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. And, uh, it, the movie, even the interesting enough, the movie begins with sort of this fake documentary approach. Uh, now at the end of the movie, Ilsa is killed. Uh, the dominatrix is killed. Now she turns up in another movie years later, um, and actually in three other movies. And apparently she dies at the end of each one, but she comes back. She's like, she's like Freddy Krueger with boobs. <laughs> right. Um, but she, in one of them, she's uh, the Tigress of Siberia. So she, apparently she's working for the communists then. Uh, then she's working for uh, a Latin American dictatorship. Uh, and I think and I think at another time she's working for um, uh, uh, the Saudis, you know, an oil sheiks, <laughs> harem keeper of the oil sheiks. So it's like she's up. completely apolitical. <laughs> right. She's just, you know, so whatever the and these so whatever is politically other yeah. whatever is politically threatening you know we can we can make an ilsa movie about that and ilsa will just show up and you know wherever you know wherever need people need to be brutalized by a corrupt a politically corrupt and alien regime she'll be there uh, she, she will be there <laughs> so it's like the the you know, it's 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 uh, we're dealing with sort of on the level of myth here yeah. that has not very little to do with. So, you know, when when you're dealing with movies like Nazi exploitation, when you're dealing with movie, you know, like uh, the famous, um, you know, Salon Kitty, uh, uh, the Night Porter movie, we're we're sort of dealing on the level of myth, on the idea of of redemption, of of you know, beauty, almost Beauty and the Beast type imagery of. Um, you know the the it's it's uh we we shouldn't take draw a straight line like I said no straight lines when we're when we're doing when people are doing Nazi play or something like that I don't think they're they're literally espousing national socialism if anything what they're espousing what they're imitating is sort of the the propaganda view of national socialism mm -hmm. that that it was run by the sexually deviant repressed perverts not like um there's a there's a great quote by uh michelle foucault 
who said that uh, he was a French philosopher of sexuality, and he said that the Third Reich was not founded by the great erotic madmen of the 20th century. It was founded by timid bourgeois bureaucrats. And so what we're de- what we're seeing when we look at Salon Kitty or at the Night Porter or you know one of the or the Ilsa Wolf of the SS, what we're looking at is sort of our you know, Western democracy's propagandistic view of, 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 uh, of, of Nazism and fascism. Well, this has been really, I've really enjoyed talking with you and I hope you're willing to come back because obviously we could talk for hours and hours about this. Thanks, Peter. And again, his website is historyofbdsm.com. We'll talk to you in another couple of weeks. Thanks again. Bye-bye.